Hello everyone, my name is Robert Ward, IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy, and welcome to a special edition of Japan Memo to mark the 20th IISS Shangri-La Dialogue, which has just taken place in Singapore. This episode was recorded on-site at the Dialogue to give our listeners an on-the-ground analysis of key moments from this year's discussions. Throughout the Dialogue's weekend, we interviewed experts to gain their views and insights on the multitude of bilateral and multilateral developments taking place. We spoke with Bill Emmett, Chair of the IISS Trustees, Dr Valerie Nike, Senior Research Fellow at France's Foundation for Strategic Research, a non-resident Senior Fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs, and Jimbo Ken, Professor at the Faculty of Policy Management at Keio University. Before we launch into the main discussion on the dialogue with my Japan Chair colleagues Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Security and Technology, and Mariko Togashi, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy, take a listen to these quick interviews. We'll start our conversation with Bill Emmett, then move to Dr. Valerie Nikkei, and finally Jimbo Sensei. We hope you enjoy this special edition of Japan Memo. Bill Emmett, um, Chair of the IISS Trustees. Uh, Bill, we've had a day and a half of meetings at the Shangri-La Dialogue 2023. What were the highlights for you and what do you think all this means for Japan? Well, I think the biggest highlight for me was seeing the uh, Secretary of Defense of the United States and the Chinese Defense Minister raise glasses of red wine to one another. Despite all the tensions in the background, all the refusals to talk, there was a sense of human contact that the, the Shangri-La Dialogue is able to bring about. So beverage diplomacy. Beverage diplomacy, exactly. I think, secondly, it's a particular highlight to see the Ukrainian defense minister here, Oleksiy Reznikov, having such a resonance around with his bilaterals around the, uh, the group uh, and learning, actually, about how many countries here have, have provided ammunition and supplies and so forth to Ukraine rather against the sort of general idea that uh, it's only a very few countries that provide support, actually more support than expected. But thirdly, I think Japan has been quite central to this Shangri-La dialogue because of the increased alliance relationships that the United States has led and Japan's role in that, both in, provide, in its own defense build-up and its own national security strategy, but in Japan's relationships with the Philippines, with the Republic of Korea, with Australia, with Indonesia in a different way, the way in which diplomacy and defense are building up together, obviously for a long-term strategy, but Japan is much more on its front foot than it ever was before in defense and diplomacy in this region, rather than on its back foot. Thank you, Bill. So, Valerie, um, what were the highlights of the Shangri-La Dialogue this year for you, and, and how do you think all of the things that were discussed might relate to Japan? I think one of the highlights is that despite all the tensions mentioned by everybody, including South China Sea most recently, and of course Taiwan, everyone also spoke of dialogue. And that's, one, uh, that's, that's an important point, also between uh, the US and China, with the last intervention by uh, General Lee, and for Japan, of course, one of the most important points is a new quad with Japan, the US, the Philippines, but time, and Australia, uh, consolidating the role of Japan uh, for free and open Indo-Pacific in the region. Thank you, Valerie. So, Jimbo-sensei, what were the highlights of this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, and what does that mean for Japan? 
Sure. I think that the highlight of this year's Shangri-La dialogue rests in the growing dilemma uh, between United States and China uh, on their strategic perspective. Obviously, the United States have committed uh, to engage in allies and partnership in Asia-Pacific region, and that is good news for allies and friends. And the China also reiterated their growing influence and presence in the rest of the world, including uh, those in Central Asia, South Asia, Middle East, and also in Africa. But in terms of how they can really manage their collision spot in East Asia that in involves Taiwan, also East and South China Sea, it is very hard to find out how they can really find the solution. And what is really lacking now is the, I think, the mechanism of the dialogue, which both Secretary Austin and uh, Defense Minister Lee have reiterated how important to have a dialogue uh, with each other. But whether they can really take a step forward to make it realize how they can really talk with each other, there has been a still a lot of stumbling block ahead uh, in both countries uh, to make that happen. So, you know, we had a, like an EP3 incident in 2001, and one, once that such kind of collision happened, we have to make our crisis mechanisms to make those, uh, you know, de-risking uh, the tension with each other. But comparing to what happened in 20 years ago, China has become a big power, and the magnitude of the collision is unimaginably higher uh, than before. So how they can really make a solid mechanisms of the dialogue and also for the mechanisms to reduce the tension is essentially important, which they haven't really found the solution at this dialogue. So Jinbo-sensei, what does that mean for Japan? It is the first time for Defense Minister Hamada since the adoption of the three strategic document that Japanese government has decided to double the size of the defense budget and also decided to procure the new equipments like uh, long-range strike capability was important to explain what is the context behind of such a new strategy. And it was, I think, delivered uh, quite well in the speech of Defense Minister Hamada. At the same time that the Japan has embarked upon a new diplomatic breakthrough with Korea, and on the summit level that uh, Prime Minister Kishida and President Yoon created uh, much confidence over the reconciliation between two political settlements. And if that could translate into the defense relationship, and that is also a huge benchmark uh, for exploring the Japan-Korea leg of cooperation in the defense. And also that will also lead to the wider United States-Japan-Korea trilateral cooperation. And on the case of China, that Defense Minister Hamada also emphasized the importance of maintaining the crisis management mechanism through the maritime and air communication mechanisms and need for, I think, dialogue between uh, two countries. So this Shangri-La dialogue obviously plays the important venue uh, for the Defense Minister Hamada to interact with those counterparts. Obviously, among those like-minded countries like United States, uh, Australia, and India, uh, but at the same time, the, having a conversation with Korea and also with China also had a very important milestone for Japan to cement its role to play in the region.
Hello, and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we're joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy at the Institute. This month's episode comes to you from the sidelines of the 20th Shangri La Dialogue here in Singapore, which is just coming to an end. I'm delighted to be joined by my two Japan Chair colleagues, Yuka Koshino, who is Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy, and Mariko Togashi who is Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy. Today we're going to be discussing our impressions of the dialogue, some of the highlights and some of the key themes from the dialogue. Yuka, first to you, what for you were the highlights of this year's dialogue and were there any significant differences in your view from last year's dialogue? Yes, I think there were、um, several very interesting differences from last year. So, first, to set the context, last year it was the first SLD after three years due to the pandemic. So, the ministers were meeting in person for the first time. So, they were kind of sharing their perspectives and trying to you know, reconnect、um, with each other. That was kind of the mood I felt. But this year, I think. One of the major differences was you know, it's post pandemic SLD, so we had strong participation from the region, but also from beyond the region, including strong European presence. We just heard that、uh, the Prime Minister of、uh, Estonia and also the German Minister took part, and, and also the UK Defence Minister took part for the first time after the pandemic. And of course, we also had a Ukrainian Minister join SLD as well. We had candid discussions on the impact and implications of war in Ukraine and Asia. The other difference, I think, was, or not the difference, but more of you know, what surprised me was coming into Singapore, I was quite worried about the atmosphere and potential tension. In this dialogue, because we were seeing lots of reportings that、uh, US and Chinese defense ministers are at the top level, they're not communicating, and we also have concerns of North Korea's military reconnaissance satellite launches. And so I thought the tension would be quite high. But coming in here informally, we've seen some, some body languages or informal greetings and interactions, lots of bilaterals happening, even with countries with diverse, different perspectives. So that was quite reassuring for me. Yes, you're, you're right. One of the big themes, I think, of this dialogue has been that the European and Asian security theatres are linked. And that, of course, picks up from Japanese Prime Minister Kishida's keynote last year、uh, when he said Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. So that was sort of that's fed through into this year's dialogue. Marika, what about you? I actually agree with that point. In terms of the theme, compared to last year, I think the parallel between、uh, Ukraine and Taiwan was even more focused throughout the dialogue. Not just several quotes on last year's Prime Minister Kishida's comment that you just mentioned, but I think more time was actually spent discussing on this matter that the two regions are indivisible and security in the Indo Pacific is what the two regions should pursue together and benefit from was actually the consistent theme. One of the highlights, certainly for the Japan Chair Program, was of course the speech by Japan's Defence Minister, Minister Hamada. And this was one of his first, I think, major addresses abroad since his appointment to the portfolio. Yuka, what for you was the main message from Minister Hamada's speech? Sure, well, of course, his session was a focus on maritime. So, one message I think that was quite strong was that the links of sea lines of communication and food security and energy security, and the importance of defending these、uh, sea lines of communication and explaining the rationale behind Japan's investments in enhancing maritime security with the partners. And the other message I think this speech was first speech after the three strategic documents were revised. So, I think there were some elements to reassure the region that Japan. 
government's intention is really to prevent war and not provoke war. So th those were, I think, quite strong messages. And also, like, call for importance of communication. And it was a good timing because Japan and China operationalized its hotline for the first time last month. And the defense ministers also met in Shangri-La and also talked about uh, the success of this implementation of this communication as well. So those were also a really important message. Yes, he had lots of questions at Q&A, so obviously testifying to the audience's interest in what Japan's doing. Marika, what about you? I think his main points were the importance of the rules-based and free and open international order and maritime security, like Yuka just pointed out. I also echo that Minister Hamada's emphasis on the importance of communications with China. It was meaningful to refer to the actual steps taken by Japan to keep the lines of communication open, not just calling for communication. And to reassure the region, it was noteworthy that he spent quite some time to emphasize that diplomacy comes first. And one thing to add in his mention on the official security Security assistance. Uh, this is Japan's new framework of providing security assistance to like-minded countries. The first countries selected are the Philippines, Malaysia, Bangladesh, and Fiji, which were all, of course, present in the dialogue. I think his mention carried the message of Japan's commitment to contribute to enhanced deterrence in the region. Just continuing on that track, Mariko, you've been focusing on economic security in your work in the Japan chair. How do you think that Japan will view the discussion on economic security from the dialogue? This year, there was more emphasis on economic aspect of security and the economic importance of the region. Australian Prime Minister Albanese touched on economic stability. U.S. Secretary Austin talked about the region is leading the economic growth. But the U.K. Secretary Wallace probably stood out to me the most. He said the three ways to maintain balance and stability in the region are upholding international rules and common standards, backing free trade, referring to the CPTPP, and promoting our principles and values. All of these show how military and economic policies and interests are even more intertwined today. And in the sideline communication, which is one of the perks of being here in person, I heard a lot of voices, especially from the Southeast Asian countries, that they're not willing to choose sides between the US and China and simply cannot, given the high exposure or dependence in many cases on the US and China economically and militarily. I think this trend of more economic aspect discussed in a security conference shows that Japan's emphasis on economic security policy and the need for a call of government approach is the right approach uh, to tackle today's security issues. Thank you, Mariko. And, and Yuka, you've been focusing on advanced and critical technology developments, among other things, in your work. What was your assessment of the debate in this field at the dialogue? Sure. I think advanced technology was discussed from diverse perspectives. And I'm very happy to see for the first time we had a special session on cyber and technology competition, which talked about emerging technologies, including AI. You know, AI was a lot of focus, especially after new services like generative AI, chat GPT, large language model AI. And this special session panel was discussed by speakers from very different agencies. We had Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence of the US, and from Japan we had Okano Masataka, who's a Deputy National Security Advisor at the Cabinet Secretary, and then we had the Singapore Armed Forces, Brigadier Chen, and also the National Defense Minister. 
vice minister from Lithuania. So you can see like, you know, when we talk about cyber and emerging technology, you need economic security perspective that Mariko just mentioned, and then defense and also, you know, more kind of uh, central agency that, that oversees this civilian and military interactions. I think the key themes for this session particularly was the challenge for public-private sector cooperation to tackle these security challenges, but also for innovation and need for governance on these emerging technologies, and then also the blurring line of the civilian and military domains, and also the need to overcome the stovepiping nature. But at the same time, we've already been talking about these challenges for several years. That, that also shows how difficult it is to overcome these barriers. Another element of advanced technology that I found interesting was the defense technology element and how regional countries, um, even including um, the U.S., the, you know, the top military power, having challenges in integrating these different domains, including new domains of space and cyber, electromagnetics, digitalizing, also even you know, enhancing communication across branches. And I think that message and the thinking was quite clear in General Yoshida, who's the new um, chief of staff of Japanese Self-Defense Force. He made a really interesting speech at the special session on Japan's approaches. So as probably you know, and, and also the listeners know, that Japan has been investing a lot in cyber and space, but we haven't really heard much on you know, how is the Japanese Self-Defense Force actually going to use these areas. And he really you know, drew lessons from the Ukraine war that having an accurate and timely assessment of the situation is really key to deterring conflict and putting in that to Indo-Pacific context. You have so many islands in the region, it's very difficult to increase the situational awareness. So he was calling for regional countries to cooperate on situational awareness in all domains. And his deterrence is deterrence by detection. So he was emphasizing the need to invest in these uh, new domains to ensure that you can increase situational awareness, including space, cyber, maritime, but also cognitive domain through cooperation with like-minded partners. So that was something that I haven't heard much and also it's, it's really a rare case to um, hear from the top of the Japanese self-defense force. So I really encourage those who are interested in Japan to listen to its speech. And what you say, I expect we're going to see more in this area at future Shangri-La dialogues, a greater weighting to this area. And final question, what does the dialogue say about Japan's evolving role in the Indo-Pacific and beyond, Yuka? Sure. I think Japanese defense ministers, prime ministers, and foreign ministers have been talking about the free and open Indo-Pacific. And recently we saw 50 pages of new you know, mm. projects of, of FOIP. But I think one of the criticisms or questions that a lot of people had on FOIP was what is the defense and military element of FOIP? But I think this SLG, including the not just the plenaries and speeches, but also the actual achievements made in the sidelines, you know, all the trilaterals like ROK, Japan, US, agree to accelerate real-time information sharing arrangement to counter North Korea threats or Japan US Australia trilateral you know I was reading a readout but I think the depth of the cooperation has significantly increased um, including cooperation on the integrated air and missile defense IMD because now Australia and Japan is going to aim for possessing long-range capabilities which will require different sets of operational and industrial capability to achieve this and also committed to more like high-level exercises so the three countries can focus on this now because 
Australia and Japan signed the RAA and the RAA passed the international diet this year. And also we've seen the new quad kind of emerging. We saw the meeting of the defense ministers of US, Japan, Australia, and Philippines. So you can see that Japan is actually doing a lot in defense and that is much more credible now because of the three documents that committed to expanding Japan's defense spending double the defense spending in the next five years. So I thought Japan's military role in the Indo-Pacific is also evolving. Mariko, final word to you. I think you could cover Japan's evolving role comprehensively, but just to add on, I think Japan's importance in the region was recognized in various speeches. For example, Secretary Austin mentioned Japan 13 times uh, in his speech. And I think the fact that Minister Hamada's touched on the new framework official security assistance indicates the more active role in the uh, military domain in the region as well. Thank you, Mariko, and thank you, Yuka. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. And for more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect you with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at Robert Allen Ward, Yuka at... Yuka Koshino and Mariko at Togashi Mariko. Thank you. Goodbye.